This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. Today, we are sharing the first episode of the new season of the Berkeley Remix, a podcast by UC Berkeley's Oral History Center. The season is called From Generation to Generation, The Legacy of Japanese-American Incarceration. It's a four-episode series that centers the experiences of descendants of Japanese-Americans who were incarcerated by the U.S. government during World War II. The episodes explore themes of activism, contested memory, identity and belonging, and creative expression as a way to process and heal from intergenerational trauma. This first episode is called It's Happening Now, Japanese-American Activism. What we decided was, what are we going to do with all these cranes? Let's go to Washington, D.C. Trump was in power. Let's go to the fence and hang 125,000 paper cranes on the White House fence to symbolize 125,000 Japanese Americans, Japanese Latin Americans, and Aleuts and everybody who got incarcerated, hang them on the fence and protest the detaining of immigrants. That was Nancy Yukai, who's a Sansei, or third-generation Japanese American. During World War II, the United States government incarcerated her family in a prison camp at Topaz, which is located in Utah. Her family was incarcerated because of her Japanese ancestry. Now Nancy is a member of Suru for Solidarity. We were organizing for this massive national pilgrimage against detention in February of 2020. And we're here today to say this must stop now! Nancy remembers when another member of Suru for Solidarity started organizing another protest. Fort Sill, Oklahoma. The government now wants to use that as a place to detain children, and that's where 700 of our ancestors, of our Issei immigrants, were held during World War II. Let's go. Like in a week. It was just amazing. And and that's kind of when Suru for Solidarity, I think, really took off. Suru for Solidarity was formed in 2019 after the Trump administration announced its immigration family separation policy at the U.S.-Mexico border. This was the so-called zero-tolerance policy. Together, a group of Japanese-American and Japanese-Latin American survivors and descendants of World War II incarceration camps convened in Crystal City, Texas. They were there to protest the separation of children from their parents. Suru means crane in Japanese and symbolizes peace, compassion, hope, and healing. At that Crystal City protest, they brought 30,000 of these brightly colored origami cranes with them. Welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. The center was founded in 1953 and records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. You're listening to our eighth season, From Generation to Generation, The Legacy of Japanese American Incarceration. I'm your host, Devin Kadayama. This season on the Berkeley Remix, we're highlighting interviews from the Japanese-American Intergenerational Narratives Oral History Project. The OHC team interviewed 23 survivors and descendants of World War II-era sites of incarceration at Manzanar in California and Topaz in Utah. In this four-part series, you'll hear clips from these interviews, which were recorded remotely via Zoom. These life history interviews explore identity, community, creative expression, and the stories family members pass down about how incarceration shaped their lives. 
As a heads up, generational names for Japanese Americans are going to be important in the series. Issei refers to the first generation of Japanese immigrants to the United States, Nisei are the second generation, Sansei the third, Yonsei the fourth, and Gosei the fifth. Just think about counting to five in Japanese Ichi, Ni, San, Shi, Go. This is episode one. It's happening now Japanese American activism. Ruth Sazaki is a Sansei descendant of Topaz. She's also involved with Suru for Solidarity. Suru worked really fast because they only heard about the impending incarceration of something like 1,500 kids at Fort Sill about 10 days before the actual demonstration. And about 26 of us flew out to Oklahoma. We had like six survivors from various camps. On June 22nd, 2019, Suru for Solidarity activists gathered at Fort Sill to protest the planned detention of 1,400 immigrant children. The site of this federal detention center struck a nerve. Fort Sill had been a prison camp for 700 Japanese immigrants in 1942. And even before that, in 1894, 400 Chiriquiwa Apache prisoners. Activists like Ruth wanted to do everything they could to keep history from repeating itself. All they wanted to do was to just share their story and explain why they were there. And of course, the MPs were trying to make us move and they were threatening us. And I was thinking, that's not a good visual, you know, arresting these little old ladies you know, who are obviously not violent. Everybody risked arrest because we didn't know if we were going to get thrown into jail. And we were joined by two or three hundred allies from all different groups the Native American community, the Latino community, Black Lives Matter. There were Holocaust survivors. These protests took place all over the country, including close to Ruth's home in the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, she was part of a protest at Lake Merritt in Oakland, California on March 6, 2021. Ruth was joined by more than 1,000 other people, some of whom objected to this family separation policy based on their own family history of incarceration. Like in Fort Sill, the protest movement wasn't limited to just Japanese Americans. It brought together people from all kinds of backgrounds. There was a, a big protest there, and that's the one where we dressed up as World War II Japanese Americans. And we got a lot of press from that. I had created a little cage using a, a Target wire storage bin <laughs> that looked like a cage with、uh, little dolls inside, like children. One was lying down covered by aluminum foil. I wanted a, a sign that would like, be visceral, not just to stop incarcerating kids. There was also a sign that said something like, My family spent 3.5 years in a camp. <laughs> It wasn't a summer camp. There was a national day of opposition to the zero tolerance policy. And it was keep families together, and it was going to be a national day of solidarity. This is Nancy Ukai again talking about Suru and a protest she went to at Tule Lake in Northern California. It's another place where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II. It was in July. About 100 people who were there at the pilgrimage got together after the traditional service and had a rally. And basically, these were survivors. Some of them were in their 80s and even 90s, possibly, and were holding up signs saying, families belong together, 
no more separation, protect the children, and directly tied their incarceration experience as children and survivors of the camps to what is happening now. And it's like, it can happen again. It is happening again. It's happening now. So this idea of never again is like, no, it's happening now. Camp Topaz, Manzanar Camp, Detention Centers, Camp, Mass Incarceration, Topaz, Camp, Manzanar Camp, Incarceration, Topaz, Manzanar Camp, Topaz, Camp. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Ten different relocation centers in unsettled parts of California, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, and Arkansas. One day after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the United States Congress declared war on Japan. Just a couple of months later, on February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. This order authorized the government to forcibly remove Japanese-American civilians, even American-born citizens, from their homes on the West Coast, and put them into incarceration camps shrouded in barbed wire and patrolled by armed guards for the duration of the war. This imprisonment uprooted families, disrupted businesses, and dispersed communities impacting generations of Japanese-Americans. I remember my parents talking about going on the street and seeing those executive order signs packed up on windows and telephone poles. They were out there in public just saying, if you're of Japanese ancestry on this date at this time, you need to show up at such and such a place. This is Susan Kitazawa. She's a sansei. Her family was incarcerated at Manzanar. The whole thing of being shipped off to camp, you could only take two pieces of luggage and whatever you took with you, you had to be able to carry yourself. And, you know, just the suddenness of it that, okay, your life has just been torn apart and you need to pack up what you can carry and show up at this place, you know, the assembly center and not knowing what was going to happen to you. They were given just a few days to pack up their belongings, shutter their businesses, sell whatever they could, often for cheap. They had to uproot their lives before reporting to assembly centers. For most of the Japanese Americans in the Bay Area who would end up in Topaz in the middle of Utah's desert, they had to report to the Tanferan Assembly Center just south of San Francisco. Japanese Americans in the Los Angeles area reported to the Santa Anita Assembly Center before being forcibly removed to Manzanar in California's arid Owens Valley. Both assembly centers were active horse racetracks. Margaret Mukai, a sansei whose family was incarcerated at Tanfran and then Topaz, remembers hearing about this from her mother. When the executive order 1966 came down, they had six days. She told me to pack up everything, take only what you could carry. She had to close the florist business, do all the books, she said, and physically close it. She arrived at Tanfran very tired from all this. People were forced to sleep in horse stalls. Here's Kimimaru, a sansei whose family was incarcerated at Tanferan. It was terrible. They were living in a horse stall. Yeah, my mother, all she said was how awful it was, the smell of horse manure, waking up to that every day. 
it was pretty filthy. She had nothing good to say about that experience at all. The food is nourishing, but simple. A maximum of 45 cents a day per person is allowed for food, and the actual cost is considerably less than this, for an increasing amount of the food is produced at the centers. A combination of oriental dishes to meet the tastes of the Issei, born in Japan, and of American-type dishes to satisfy the Nisei, born in America. Kimi's family was sent to Topaz from Tamfaran. Life in camp was difficult. Kimi remembers her mother talking about how even the simple things in Topaz were hard. As far as food went, she really said the food was terrible. She remembers getting food that had maggots in it. She said that they used to be served spam a lot, which is why she really didn't like it. You know, we never really grew up eating spam much at all because it reminded her of camp. Incarceration didn't just have a profound impact on families and individuals. It also had an impact on the Japanese-American community as a whole. This impact continued beyond the time they spent in camp, long after the last camp closed in 1946. Here's Bruce Embry, a sansei whose mother was incarcerated at Manzanar. The legacy is that this is not some static little episode in history that we go back to and pay homage to. It's something that is to be learned from and applied. And that's what my mother did. My mother learned from her experience in camp and applied it in her life. When she assessed what happened to her in Manzanar, she said, we had no political power. We were a young immigrant community. We had no allies. It wasn't just the survivors who carried the scars from that history, but also their children, their grandchildren. Many Japanese-American families didn't discuss what happened in the camps. It was common for older Issei and Nisei generations to be completely silent on the topic. Jean Habino, a sansei whose parents were incarcerated in Topaz, remembers being told, Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. Don't stick your neck out. Why do we want to do this? We're okay. Why do we want to bring up old wounds? But as time went on, some younger Japanese Americans did want to reopen these wounds. Sansei activists felt that in order to empower themselves and find allies, the Japanese American community wanted to talk about how they were treated during World War II. And they wanted to share these memories with others. This led to decades-long activism by individuals and groups like the National Coalition for Redress Reparations, called the Redress Movement. Japanese Americans and other allies fought the United States government for several things. Among them was an apology for this unjust incarceration and monetary reparations for the harm that was caused. Here's Kimimaru speaking about the importance of the redress movement to the Japanese-American community. But it wasn't until the redress movement came about and people, Niseis and Iseis at that time, really started opening up and speaking about what they went through. Before that, many people, especially Sanseis, never even heard their parents utter a word about it. You know, it was just not something that people spoke about. Redress helped break these intergenerational silences. It was through the redress movement that I think it really uh, brought the community together and really opened up a chapter in history that needed to be talked about. The younger generations needed to learn about what people went through. 
The redress movement picked up steam in the 1970s and 80s. It led to official congressional hearings as part of the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. In 1981, congressional hearings were held for 20 days in cities across the country. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Chicago, Cambridge, New York, Anchorage, and the Aleutian and Pribilof Islands. During these hearings, survivors of incarceration publicly shared their stories. Kimimaru says that testimony was moving. And then when the commission hearings happened, that was when there was such an outpouring of people sharing what had happened to them. Things that most people had never even heard of as far as what people lost in terms of their houses, their businesses, their belongings, you know, the conditions in camp itself. Here's Hans Goto, a sansei whose family was incarcerated first at Manzanar and later at Topaz. When they got to Los Angeles, unbeknownst to me, uh, my father decided to give testimony. I think that was the first time he ever told the story to public. My father spoke about how difficult it was and how emotional it was. And that really struck me more than anything else. It's like, that's part of the history of the camps, in quotes, that we never heard. You know, we always heard, oh, yeah, we went to camp and we met so-and-so. And there's some really heartfelt stories of deprivation, things being taken away, their whole life being turned upside down and so on. Reverend Michael Yoshi is a sansei whose family was incarcerated at Topaz. He was in the room when person after person would get up to tell their story. There were three days of hearings in San Francisco, and my parents came to all of them. You know, so many people that I had known in the community came to the hearings. And it was just so profound, the uh, energy there. I think there were like 500 people in the room and just the gripping testimonies from, from Issei's, from Issei's and Santos like myself. You can um, feel people just listening to every word. It was a very cathartic experience for me personally. It was clearly a cathartic experience for our whole community. Bruce Embry's mother, Sue Kunatomi Embry, testified at the Los Angeles hearings on August 5th, 1981. She joined over 150 survivors of incarceration and descendants in sharing their stories and appealing for justice. In her testimony, she said, quote, The period I spent in Manzanar was the most traumatic experience of my life. It has influenced my perspective, as well as my continuing efforts to educate, persuade, and encourage others of my generation to speak out about the unspeakable crime. Here's Kimi again reflecting on the impact of redress. It was a pretty intense movement that finally resulted in President Reagan passing the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 and signed it, which recognized that the government had made a mistake. It was wrong. It was based on racist wartime hysteria and lack of leadership, and then $20,000 reparations for those who went through that experience. No one felt that that was enough money that would ever, you know, pay for what people lost. But it was at least a recognition that it was wrong. Redress was also an exercise for the Japanese-American community in growing political power and building coalitions. A lot of the same people who pushed for redress were involved in other social justice movements like civil rights, yellow power, and the anti-Vietnam War protests. 
What happened to Japanese Americans during World War II helped ignite decades of political activism. For many in this community, the history of incarceration is a call to action. Kimimaru remembers growing up with this activism. My parents used to go to all the anti-war marches that were in San Francisco against the Vietnam War from really early on when these marches first started. And I was pretty young then. I, I just kind of grew up going on anti-war marches. Once I got into Berkeley, there was a lot of anti-war protests going on, and I started joining some of them. But for us as Asians, looking at what was going on in Vietnam, I think there was a visceral reaction to that particular incursion into Vietnam. That was Reverend Yoshi again. And this is Bruce Embry. I think this is a quote from the amazing woman, Audre Lorde, where she says, silence will not protect you. And my mother used that a lot. Silence would not protect us. She says, if you think that the U.S. government is no longer rounding up Asians and incarcerating them in concentration camps, look at what's happening in Vietnam and Indochina. U.S. imperialism is, just as it did to us, still utilizing racism to oppress Asians and Asian Americans. On September 11th, 2001, the United States was hit by the largest terrorist attack in its history. The attacks were carried out by Al-Qaeda, a terrorist organization then based in Afghanistan. In the wake of these attacks, the United States went to war, as hate crimes and xenophobia against Muslims and Arab Americans went up. For Japanese Americans, this wartime hysteria seemed all too familiar. Reverend Yoshi remembers it this way. The first Sunday after 9-11, I had just an open conversation with people like many Christians were doing to just debrief what was happening. And one member really brought up his memories of Pearl Harbor and how immediately the Nisei and Issei were targeted as the enemy. And he was concerned about uh, what's happening with Arabs and Muslims and South Asians because he knew that they would be a targeted enemy that could be vulnerable in the American context. The next week I invited an imam to come speak to us. And then we began working with the local Afghan community. And the parallel was that the FBI was coming into Muslim communities at this particular time, doing surveillance and monitoring things. And that happened with Japanese Americans too. Many of us knew that there would be a time where the Civil Liberties Act would be important for other communities. It's not just about ourselves, but it's going to be a principle for others. And I think that really came home in 9-11. Many Japanese Americans wanted to show support for Muslims and Arab Americans, advocating as their allies. In return, some of these communities have remained connected. Here's Roy Hirabayashi, a Nisei whose family was incarcerated in Topaz. Over the years, the Japanese community has really tried to connect and support other communities in distress or having their own challenges. So the Muslim community naturally was being supported, even the Latino community, the immigration issues. And that solidarity between communities is mutual for many. February 19th is called the Day of Remembrance. It's a time to acknowledge the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Roy has been going to these events for years. Over the past 10 years, the attendance for the Day of Remembrance has really increased. Before, we were happy maybe if 100 people come. Now, you know, it's like standing room only. And it's not just the Japanese communities, but just uh, different folks in the, from the larger communities coming out for this event, too. Which brings us back to Suru for Solidarity. 
For these activists building coalitions, the past and the present will always be connected because of incarceration, because of redress, because of their history of organizing. Sudu for Solidarity has become a place where people have particular political interests, prison abolition, H.R. 40, to support congressional legislation for Black reparations. That's another thing that Sudu for Solidarity is doing. So I think all of these ways of connecting and becoming an activist voice is just really important. That was Nancy Ukai. Here's Kimi Maru again. I think because Japanese Americans were able to win redress by organizing in our community and telling the stories about what happened to us, we wanted to share with people in the African-American community and just let them know that we're behind them. And we want them to know that it's possible to win, getting the government to admit when they've done something wrong and to redress it is something that everyone has a right to do. Many descendants believe staying silent about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II won't protect people facing injustice today. And for some of them, taking action is an obligation. They feel they need to speak out to prevent history from repeating itself. Susan Kitazawa, who was interviewed by Amanda Tweez, agrees. Susan, what do you think motivated you to get involved in these ways? It's a funny question. (laughs) I think my question is, why isn't everybody doing that? (laughs) Like, aren't we here to do that? You know, there's a lot of uneven playing fields in the world and in our lives. There's a lot of things that aren't just. And it's our responsibility to do what we can to fix that. Thanks for listening to From Generation to Generation, The Legacy of Japanese-American Incarceration and the Berkeley Remix. Next time, the history, legacy, and contested memory of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. This episode features interviews from the Oral History Center's Japanese-American Intergenerational Narratives Oral History Project and includes clips from Bruce Embry, Hans Goto, Jean Hibino, Roy Hirabayashi, Susan Kitazawa, Kimimaru, Margaret Mukai, Ruth Sazaki, Nancy Yukai, and Reverend Michael Yoshi. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional archival audio from Suru for Solidarity and the National Archives. The transcript from Sue Kunitomi Embry's testimony comes from the Los Angeles hearings from the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. This episode was produced by Rose Kaur, Roger Early Pryor, Shanna Farrell, and Amanda Tweez. Thank you to the National Park Service's Japanese American Confinement Sites Grant for funding this project. To learn more about these interviews, visit the Oral History Center's website listed in the show notes. I'm your host, Devin Kadiyama. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>